a, co- a kilo of methamphetamine in China or Mexico is probably about a thousand dollars to to buy. That same kilo here in New Zealand retails for around one hundred eighty thousand dollars. It's not a physically addictive drug like heroin, but psychologically very addictive. It makes you feel incredible. Makes you feel ten foot tall. In every level of the supply chain, it's worth money. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. With spectacular glaciers, hot springs, beautiful sandy beaches, and an envious response to COVID 19, New Zealand is the envy of the world. With a population just shy of 5 million, it's made up of a North and South Islands, which have attracted movie makers in their droves, turning it into the Hollywood of the Pacific. But there's also a shadowy side to New Zealand, and journalist Jared Savage knows all about it. He's the country's top crime correspondent, and he's just penned a book on gangland, which tells the grim tale of the rise of a dangerous underworld fueled by an insatiable appetite for meth. He tells me about biker gangs, cold-blooded murder and the real-life Walter White. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. kind of always have this idyllic view of New Zealand about, you know, the Lord of the Rings and your beautiful country and your beautiful climate and everything seems so perfect, including your response to the pandemic. We're all so jealous of you all over the rest of the world, you know. Jacintha Arden seems to be the only one that's uh, that's doing it properly. And then we look at your work and what you're doing, which is similar to me, except you're you're just in a totally different country and you have the same problems as we do. Mm. I have to say, I re- I've read your book and you are about 10 or 15 years behind us with a different drug. Yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, a lot of a lot of your listeners and, you know, people living overseas would see New Zealand as an idyllic sort of place and, and certainly at the moment with COVID, you know, um, we're living, we're, we're looking pretty good. But, um, you know, underlying all of it, um, we have the same social issues that are seen around the world. Um, you know, the gap between the haves and the have-nots has increased recently. We have housing problems, we have poverty, we have drug and alcohol abuse, we have domestic, horrific rates of domestic violence. And it's, you know, it's all tied into the same sorts of um, sorts of issues. So, yes, yeah, certainly uh, drug drug issues, methamphetamine in particular, um, has really changed the criminal underworld here in the last sort of twenty years or so. Yeah, and I'd agree. We're probably we we often think we're about five years behind Australia, and so I'd say yeah, ten to fifteen years behind the UK and Ireland is would be would be bang on. So the issue with drugs kind of started to come to light for you guys in New Zealand really in the 90s. Not It wasn't so much a problem in the 80s and the 70s when I suppose here we would have started with, you know, our heroin problem, which, which really ignited everything. But tell me about New Zealand, 
in the 80s and then what, what happens in the 90s? Sure thing. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. We, New Zealand hasn't really, in the 70s and 80s, New Zealand didn't really have a hard drug problem. Um, a lot of cannabis here. Obviously, we've got a good climate and um, a lot of space to, to grow cannabis. So that was, that was probably the stock and trade and the drug of choice for drug users. And, you know, people will have views either way on how harmful cannabis is. Um, we had some... We had some uh, heroin, small amounts of heroin in the 1980s. People were um, sort of baking it themselves, um, some imported. Um, but really, things really changed a lot in, in the late 90s with methamphetamine being introduced here. Um, in particular, it was quite a, a potent form of methamphetamine. It was a pure form of methamphetamine, um, not what we would recall as speed, which is sort of like a half cut. Um, amphetamine drug. So quite quickly, it became a very um, popular drug here in New Zealand. Um, it's not a physically addictive drug like heroin, but psychologically very addictive. It makes you feel incredible, makes you feel 10 foot tall, uh, mm. sexy, intelligent, makes you feel articulate, huge amounts of energy. And it really took off in that late 90s. Uh, of course, that's, you know, the cycle of addictions, um, a terrible thing to overcome. So people, it soon became, uh, it soon got, a, it was popular, it was popular amongst, um, from anywhere from the white collar, you know, and li people living in the leafy suburbs, you know, kids going to private schools, you, you, your office workers down in downtown Auckland, which is our largest city. And then, you know, all the way through across, you know, across society really. And, um, the, the motorcycle gangs in particular, the outlaw motorcycle gangs here, uh, the Hells Angels, the Highway 61 and, and the Headhunters, just to name a few, they soon cottoned on to the huge amounts of money to be made from it. Um, incredibly lucrative profits here, literally millions of dollars floating around. So all of a sudden they went from, you know, controlling supply of cannabis um, and, you know, the sex trade to, to a lesser extent uh, to then being in control of this methamphetamine trade and um, it, just, it just took off. Um, and in those early days, it was very popular, uh, like I said, across all sections of society, but it soon got a stigma um, in, in regards to, you know, it made people do some pretty crazy, horrific crimes. We had some quite, you know, we had some really terrible um we called it P as well, P for pure. Some, we had some quite P-fueled crimes, horrific um, murders um, of children even. Um, and so it got a bit of a stigma and it sort of probably pushed it underground um, a wee bit, but um, it's certainly always been there. And, and then it sort of, um, maybe it didn't die from view, it was always there, um, but possibly because it was, um, affl afflicting poorer rural communities, it probably didn't get quite the same sort of um, media coverage. Uh, and then about five years ago, we'd sort of seen another big, uh, a second wave of the of the epidemic, I suppose, in a way, and it's really come back quite strong. So, Jared, meth we're not familiar with. You know, here we would we would certainly see a lot of it from the states, and you know, the, there's the whole meth teeth and all that. What exactly is it and how is it made? It's a stimulant. Um, 
it's a synthetic it's a synthetic compound so it's not naturally it's not a, it's not from a natural plant or anything like like cocaine it's a stimulant which was first developed um, way back in the early 1900s by uh, chemists um, it was in some way shape or form it was used as a stimulant um, legally for quite for quite some time it was used by soldiers in World War two Um uh, here and then, of course, uh, being synthetic, the, the you know the chemical extraction process has refined over the years and become more potent. Uh, and then it started getting outlawed in the in the US in the seventies, um, and then around the world from then. It's a um, it can come in different like forms. Like you can, uh, it's like um, the most common form we would see here would be in like a crystalline form or a powder a powder form. Um, you can most commonly smoked here in like a small um, small glass mm-hmm. pipe, or we even people even use light bulbs um, to heat to heat it, uh, heat the bulb, and then and then inhale it. Um, it can also be snorted, it can be swallowed, it can be injected. So um, just to give your listeners an idea of um, the profits, because you might just think, oh, New Zealand, little country at the end of the world, um, why would transnational organised groups target New Zealand. Um, our prices here are incredible for it. Um, a, co- a kilo of methamphetamine in China or Mexico is probably about $1,000 to, to buy. Uh, if you move that kilo from Mexico to the United States, it's probably worth $5,000. Um, that same kilo here in New Zealand at a wholesale level, so no, yeah, we're not a, a user wouldn't buy a kilo of it, right? You, you, we smoke it in a tenth of a gram, but a kilo of it um, currently retails for around $180,000. So you go from one to five to 180000 It got as low as $120,000 because, uh, $120, because basically the, the introduction, the arrival of these Mexican cartels joining sort of the Asian groups that were pushing it, um, and it flooded the market. Um, mm-hmm. But to put it into context, before, prior to that, we're probably talking three hundred thousand dollars for a kilo, um, which is worth in, in every level of the supply chain. It, it's worth money. So if you're wholesaling it for um, a kilo, you then break it into ounces. So an ounce is about twenty eight point five grams. That can be worth anywhere between twelve to eighteen thousand dollars, depending on supply. You break it down further. Um, into, into grams, that's fluctuated anywhere between $400 to $800 a gram. But what has remained constant the entire time, no matter what's happened, is that a point of a gram, um, so a tenth of a gram, is always retailed for around $100, and that's, staying, that's been maintained for 20 years. So there's a huge amount of money to be made, millions of dollars. And the reason it's so expensive, is that because you're an island? I mean, I'm saying that, and we are too but it's because it's difficult to transport it in? I mean, are they not, are the dealers and, and those not making meth in that it's synthetic? Are they not making it in the country and in that way reducing the cost? I've often wondered why it's stayed so high at, 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 that, at that level. It's simply the demand for it, I think. Um, it's um, We don't really have a cocaine or... So, like MDMA would be popular in like sort of like the nightclubs sort of dance scene in Auckland and, and maybe some of the other bigger centres. Um, we don't we until recently we haven't had a lot of cocaine being imported. Obviously, that can only really come from South America or or Mexico. Um, 
it's for whatever reason, it's just the drug that's really hooked into New Zealanders. Um, I mean, I'm not saying everyone's walking around. You know, I think the figures are around one percent of the population, um, mm-hmm. but but heavily entrenched. So. Um, using it a lot. Um, a lot mm. of people can mask their addiction and keep working. Um, so I'm not, I, I can't really put a figure on as to why it stayed so high, but uh, I put it down to demand. And I also put it down to um, organised criminal groups controlling the supply of it. So I would, you know, I would not be surprised that, you know, your stock... They control the pr- they're controlling the price as well, obviously, and they're keeping that price up, yeah. You talk about cocaine and perhaps it's on the way, perhaps it's not going to be a drug of choice for for Kiwis. But I um, amazingly uh, was writing recently, we can't talk about it too much because some of it is before the courts here, but there was certainly entrepreneurs from here who were actually flying over as far as uh, New Zealand and Australia with cocaine um, cocaine mules, human mules flying because the price of cocaine with you is so high. You are four times higher than our, our street price of coke. So therefore, if you can take 25,000 quids worth of it in your stomach, um, people were taking the chance to make the flight because they'll turn that into 100,000. Yeah, so, and again, that, that just shows, you know, how even though we're a small market, we're an attractive market because of those profits to be made. Uh, yeah, cocaine, and I'm familiar with the case that, that you refer to there, and um, yeah, that's when that sort of cropped up maybe three or four years ago here, that was um, sort of the, the beginning of the time where we were seeing more cocaine coming in coming into the market, Um that was, uh, I mean, it's always been there or thereabouts, um, more more so in Auckland, which is our main city and also our main port and our main airport. So um, most of the population's there, you know, and like many places in the world, popular with um, probably white-collar professionals more often, but, but simply because of the price, I think it, it fluctuates, but the, the price of a gram here of cocaine is about $350. Um, and obviously the high from cocaine is not as, long-lasting as, as meth. And maybe, maybe that's partly down to its popularity of meth to it. The high from it lasts quite some quite some time. We're talking probably 12 hours. Eight hours. Yeah, eight to 12 yeah. hours. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so we're definitely seeing more cocaine and um, we're often seeing more cocaine coming through with, with some methamphetamine shipments from the South Americas and Mexico. Um, we have a new sort of one of the recent arrivals in New Zealand and some of these Australian gangs. Um, Australia brought in a, they changed their migration laws a few years ago to be able to deport anyone uh, on good character grounds. So, what they, which many countries do, but what, what they used it for was to get rid of their, many of their senior criminal criminals basically and deport them back to New Zealand or the Pacific Islands where they might have been born. So we so really these people had lived their entire lives in Australia, growing up there, all their social networks and friends and whatever, um, were Australian. They speak with an Australian accent and they were deported here. Um, literally they might have been born here and then moved to Australia, which is a you know a common a common thing in New Zealand and, and um, you know migration around the world. So all of a sudden we had these very, you know, among, you know, thousands of people getting deported back here, 
for various reasons, uh, and a small proportion of them were quite senior members of Australian motorcycle gangs who were, as I said before, were probably about five years behind Australia in terms of our organised criminal um, structures, but that's really accelerated things. So they, they came here um, with quite a brash attitude, <laughs> I would say, ruffling some feathers, not really keen to necessarily just fit in with the establishment, uh, you know, established criminal world here. Um, they brought quite a tough attitude with them, um, quite genuine transnational links across the world because many of these groups have chapters around the around the world, um, and you know, so, as well as quite superior, like, like quite a step up in terms of um, criminal counter surveillance. So, in terms of um, they were aware of, and, and not that the criminals here weren't aware of of how the police investigated, but it was like a, a step up in terms of encrypted devices, um, counter surveillance techniques, in terms of just meeting in parks and, and never talking inside cars or houses and, and things like that. So. They, sorry, I've, I've digressed here, but basically they, they also have a, cocaine's more popular in Australia than it is here, so I guess they've tried to introduce that with, with methamphetamine as well. The motorbike gangs are, again, something that just are not big here. There are small um, motorbike gangs that um, have been, you know, there's there's been a little bit of investigation into their activities, but certainly it would not be a thing here. I think across the world, the biker gangs have moved meth and have pushed meth that is their their drug um that funds their funds their their other activities but um so where did they come from originally in 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 New Zealand and you know did they did they how do they pop up or how do they they get together i'm sure in the same way most criminal gangs probably a silly question but for us that don't uh see them um, and I, uh, I'll confess that I'm not, you know, there's probably a sociological aspect to this, which is um, I'm not an expert in, but, but basically many of the, of the gangs here, we, we'd, have two, we'd have two groups of, of motorcycle, two classes of motorcycle, or sorry, of gangs, I should say. So on one hand, you've got the outlaw motorcycle groups, um, which in New Zealand, we were actually, New Zealand was the first country in the world outside of the United States to have a chapter of the Hells Angels. So Hells Angels would probably be the most infamous uh, motorcycle gang globally. Uh, I think we, Auckland was the first place to get a chapter. I think it was in the 1960s. Um, they recently celebrated 50 or 60 years anyway. But, you know, they were, in, in those early days, I, I think they were probably just misfits, um, social outcasts, um, Many of them were returning soldiers from coming back from various wars, didn't feel like they fitted in anymore, um, banded together to, um, you know, to as a form of brotherhood perhaps. Um, and then so that, that's dating back several decades now, and we have our own, so as well as the House Angels, there was a group we would call the Highway 61, uh, the Headhunters, a uh, New Zealand-grown group, um, yeah, and for a long time, and there's all sorts, Devil's Henchmen, um, the, the Road Knights, there's a whole bunch of them, but quite small groups probably uh, in the early days. A chapter would be, you know, 20 to 30 people um, and, you know, involved in various skirmishes and, and um, you know, pub fights and kind of like quite low-level thuggish sort of stuff, I suppose. Um, there would have been some, you know, involvement in the cannabis trade and the sex trade and, and things like that. Um, 
And and the other the other group that we have here, we, we would call them, uh, well, the police call them ethnic gangs, uh, which sounds probably a little bit not really that PC anymore. But uh, so in New Zealand we have the mongrel mob, which is the New our biggest gang by far, um, several thousand members, divided into chapters, you know, geographical chapters. Um, each with their own president, and, and the Black Power is another another group here. So largely Maori and Pacific Island membership. Again, probably drawn together by trauma in their childhoods. I would I would say um, physical and sexual abuse, poverty, drug abuse, alcohol in the family, that sort of thing. So again, I, 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 without wanting to generalise it too much, um, you know, drawn drawn together by being social outcasts, I think, and, and, and being together in, in yeah. a brotherhood. Um, that's the historical sort of, you know, context yes. to it. And then I think with the advent of methamphetamine, um, some of those groups got, into, got control of it quite early. So the headhunters in particular, Hells Angels, Highway 61, um, they controlled the supply of it and the manufacture of it, and we can. And some of the other groups were probably more affected by the use of it, actually, and, and the damage that it's done to their families. So, um, but methamphetamine has definitely changed the gangs from being middling players, I suppose, in, in that criminal world to some of them being quite powerful. And one of the one of the first stories in your book, Gangland, uh, New Zealand's Underworld of Organised Crime, is one about um, William Wallace, who 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 um, worked in an airline company, and uh, you know you found this story. I think through the courts that you were covering the courts, this guy had. Um, started to fix bikes in his redundancy. He set up a, a a place where he was fixing the bikes and he met up with these guys from the Highway 61 motorcycle gang. And all of a sudden, I think the police there realised it was in the late 90s that he was actually running a meth factory. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's a real, um, you know, it's a real Breaking Bad sort of Walter White type story in a way. He, he was a guy yeah. who'd been straight all his life, um, Got made redundant, had a midlife crisis, um, so he started running yeah an, an electroplating business, uh, you know, putting chrome on bikes and cars and, and all sorts of things. And yeah, he met these Highway sixty one guys, and one thing led to another, and then they realised, you know, or he realised that he had these skills because it's, it's quite a complicated process to you know to cook meth, manufacture it, and um, yeah, he became probably the first. The f- well, one of the first big time meth cooks here, and just made truckloads of money. So like, he was you know he built, you know got a nice house, built a big stone wall around it for a hundred thousand um, dollars, flash cars, trips overseas, uh, and the works really. And um, they that particular story is sort of seen as the tipping point really where. Um, I think the police here realised the scale of of, of what was happening. Um, this is still very the very early days, you know, late nineties, and um, he, yeah, he was working with the Highway sixty one, which interestingly isn't really around anymore. They they were well, I talk about how some of these groups um, were transformed and made more influential and powerful, and and, and the headhunters would be the the main one there. But um, Highway sixty one. Basically, methamphetamine led to a whole bunch of infighting within their group. Um, one of their members killed their president. Um, you know, so 
you, you all of a sudden the police are investigating that, and so they kind of imploded really, and they're not really um, even. Re- I mean, they're still around, but um, yeah, they've certainly fallen away compared to some of these other groups. And now we have these Australians turning up um, and muscling in and, and creating some friction here, which has which has changed things again. And Jared, what happened, William Wallace, and uh, the, the 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 real life Walter White? Is he still with us? The um, I couldn't actually find the answer to that question. I he was pretty. I think he was fairly old um, at the time that he went away. He was. I think he was in his early sixties at that time. We're talking twenty years ago now. But yeah, I struggled. I struggled to find him actually. So he um, maybe he read about himself for in his Christmas present. I don't. I don't know. But. Um, it's incredibly, it's an incredibly interesting story, and just the parallels are are quite extraordinary for anyone who's who's watched Breaking Bad. Except, I think, I think he chose to go into the the game for for the money, didn't he? Which can often be a rarity in that world. The um the headhunters you've spoken about were they the first gangs to team up with the big Asian mafias or? Were they were they the ones who really brought it to a new level for you for you? Yeah, that's that's right. I think um, they. So just to give a bit of context as to why that's important. So methamphetamine, the main ingredient is pseudoephedrine, um, which is a chemical most commonly found in cold and flu medicines. So what was happening was the gangs were sending people into pharmacies and buying truckloads of you know pseudoephedrine, cold and flu medicine over the counter. They would come back, open the packets up, tip out all the granules from the from the thing, from the medicines, and extract the pseudoephedrine from that, which is then cooked into you know uh, with other chemicals and heat uh, and, into methamphetamine. So, uh, what happened eventually was is that pseudoephedrine based medicines were banned in New Zealand, um, which is actually a terrible shame because they're the most effective cold and flu medicine. So we have really rubbish, don't get a cold in New Zealand, we have really rubbish cold and flu medicine now. But the ban didn't didn't work because in China, um, they have lots of pseudoephedrine-based medicines, one called Contact NT. So any of the Asian groups basically just got their buddies back home in China to go buy truckloads of them, of pseudoephedrine medicines, shell them and send them over and send them over here. So if the if you had good links back to China, you could source pseudoephedrine for your manufacture here in New Zealand. And that's really what the transform the headhunters, they had quite good contacts with um, with Asian groups themselves. They also had quite good contacts with, you know, methamphetamine cooks who had good Asian, strong Asian contacts. So they had that supply of pseudoephedrine coming in, despite the fact that it was banned here um, and hard, more difficult to get. Um, so that was, yeah, that's what really sort of led to them becoming um, quite strong. And well, members of their of their game becoming quite strong and influential in, in that world, making million, literally millions of dollars, um, and, and and funding a lifestyle far beyond what they would have been legitimately earning. Now, like the rest of the world, you're probably seeing the seizures that are made going up and up and up in size. And you know, twenty years ago, what would have made the headlines probably isn't even you know, ruffling any feathers nowadays. Yeah. But, um, you know, you spoke about the Australians coming in. I think you've also probably um, seen the arrival of that narco culture that 
the Mexicans maybe, um, you know, developed. But you have you, you, in your book, you talk about the Comancheros. Am I pronouncing that right? And uh, they're another biker gang who posed for photographs with their gold plated Harleys. Yeah, gold plated Harleys. Yeah, pretty, pretty. I mean, it was quite. There's been a change in, in the culture as well between the old school and the new and the new school gangsters coming through. So, you know, some of these younger guys. So the Comancheros were among these groups that were members of which deported from Australia, which I mentioned earlier. They come up here. Um, they love showing off the in Australia. <laughs> there's quite a good term. They call it the Nike bikey. The Nike bikey. So these are guys. They, they um, they're wearing Versace. So I go along to court, right? And these guys get sentenced, and they're wearing Versace, black, like quite garish black and gold, which is their colours. Um, uh, putting it on Instagram. Um, they've got flash bikes, flash cars, flash homes, good-looking girlfriends. You know, they're quite uh, quite willing to show it off. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, that would have some benefits in terms of recruitment, I think, as well. Um, and marrying it up was quite a, you know, quite a ruthless attitude at times. Um, there was, uh, an, you know, an execution-style double murder. Well, murder and attempted murder of a husband and wife simply for basically besmirching the commentator's name and, and that was seen by the police here as this new group stamping their mark really and, and just saying we're not gonna we're not we're not here to muck around and make friends so um definitely it's you know um it's the introduction of of these australian gangs but but also the younger generation of established gangs coming through uh, are also prolific on social media, and um, and similarly, they look great. Like they're, they're gym, they're gym junkies. You know, they got nice haircuts, cool tattoos, um, nice Rolexes and cars and things. So definitely, it's a generational shift too, and that's creating friction between some of these between the the older hierarchy and the younger the young bulls coming through as well. And we most definitely see that here as well. It's it's a culture, really, isn't it? And that's really why, you know, it's it's kind of getting closer and closer to that narco territory of Central and South America. Um, I just maybe, you know, ask you something that isn't miserable and <laughs> drug related and gangland. That's um, good. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just to finish on a lighter note, maybe, but... Um, just tell us something, because we're here in Ireland and we're in this awful, awful lockdown again. The weather is awful. It's winter time, and we're getting really, really tired and, and everybody's struggling a little bit with us. Tell us something lovely that we can think about, about your, your, you're in your summer now, so the sun must be shining. Have you been to a gig or anything? Um, oh, no, I haven't, been, I haven't been to a gig lately, but um, I live in... Uh Tauranga, which is about two and a half hours southeast of, of Auckland. Um, beautiful white sandy beaches, uh, blue surf water, the sun shining most days. We're living in a what seems to be a parallel universe. I, I kind of look at what's happening around the world and, and see the rest of the world burning a little bit, and I just think, man, I'm very blessed and privileged to be living here and um, but we look forward to the day where the borders are back open and we can welcome all our Irish friends to come back and, and visit us so um, 
please make sure you come and see me when you uh, when this when this horrific pandemic ends. I think, Jared, I am going to have some serious investigating to do in New Zealand um, into the underworld myself. It'll take me over there. It sounds absolutely fabulous. Listen, thank you so much for your time. It's very interesting to hear what's happening on the other side of the world. Thank you, Jared Savage. Pleasure. Thank you. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>